We'll be in 1 Kings uh, today, uh, the 14th chapter. Uh, we'll be talking a little bit about what's gone on before. So to give you an example, an idea of, of, uh, <laughs> of, of what goes on um, as I prep for uh, a message, uh, give you a, like an insight, insight into the, the bag of cats that is my brain. Um, God speaks to me in ways, I think, that are unique. I think he speaks to us each uniquely. And he knows that I'm not the smartest guy, not the sharpest tool in the shed. So he speaks to me on my level. I love the fact that God is never one to, to keep all the good stuff on the high shelf that we can't obtain to. He puts it down to where we grasp. And so I'm telling you this because in prepping for the message this week, and, and uh, especially yesterday as I was pulling it all together, um, there were two songs that were running through my head, and I need to tell you right off the bat that they're, they're, they're not really Christian churchy songs, but that was running through my head is, is kind of what I was anchoring around what I was reading this week in, in the passage. And the first one was a song by Elton John called Levon. And there's a line in the song Levon that, that really hit me. It was like, it was, it was, he was born a pauper to a pawn. It's like this, this kid never had a chance. He was going to be born poor into a, a family that was being controlled by others. And if you listen to Levon, um, you'll realize that it, it's kind of a, a song about someone who can't shake family traditions. Because Le Levon's dad, or, or not Levon's dad, Levon has a son. He calls him Jesus because he likes the way the name sounds. And he runs, Levon runs the family business. And the family business is they sell cartoon balloons. And we know it's a family business because the, the song specifically says the family business is doing well, I think, if I'm paraphrasing it correctly. So this is something that Levon has known his whole life. He watched his dad sell cartoon balloons. Maybe he watched his grandpa sell cartoon balloons. And now he sells cartoon balloons. But the whole song is about someone who would really like something more, but can't seem to shake family tradition. That was the first song. <laughs> the other song is actually called Family Traditions. And it was performed and written by a guy named Hank Williams Jr. Now, here's where I go out on a limb and say that in Ripley County today, that there is not another minister who started their message referencing Elton John and Hank Williams Jr. This, you're stuck with me, all right? Uh, but let me tell you why that song hit me, because like Levon, a guy who wants to break family traditions, Hank Williams Jr., he talks in this song about, no, this is who I am. This is my family. Now, granted, this is not one that we will will sing in church, because the chorus of the song, Hank, why do you drink? Why do you blow smoke? Why do you insist to write to live out the songs that you wrote. Over and over, people ask me about my condition. I'm just carrying on a family tradition. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. That's the whole song. Because he's living a life that it's going to tear him down. And the thing we have to realize is that for Hank Williams Jr., he was doing that. His father, Hank Williams, lived that same life. So he... Hank Jr. was living as his father 
would have left. I don't know how much Hank Williams Jr. remembers of his father. His father died at an incredibly young age. He lived a life that was hard. Um, you know, in my time as a musician, there was a phrase that we would bat around that was, it went like this, everyone wants to be Hank Williams, but nobody wants to die. And the whole sum and substance of that was, is nobody wants to do what Hank Williams did to become Hank Williams. And it wasn't not just, it wasn't all about just writing great songs. This is the way he lived. I mean, he would perform 300 days out of the year. Back when they didn't have the tour buses, he would drive in the back of a car. Someone would drive him. Sometimes he drove himself. He got addicted to drugs that would give him energy for a performance. He got addicted to drugs that would help him sleep after the performance, and he drank his way to an early death. And that's the family tradition that Hank Jr. sings about. And the reason I'm bringing all this up is because I think there's a very important point that we need to realize. We will build upon the foundation that is laid before us. We will start there and build upon for our lives. Now, we have that choice at some point. If we don't like how the foundation is laid, that we can take a different tack. But growing up, I remember uh, several years ago, I saw this uh, Tom Hanks movie. It was called Joe Versus the Volcano. It's a very unmemorable movie. It wasn't all that great. But there were lines in that movie that stuck with me. And one of them was from the tribal chief when asked why they were doing a certain thing that they always do that nobody seemed to know why they do it anymore. His response was, we are children of children and we do as we've seen. And I think that's true. I think that's true. Now, that's just kind of to set up where we're at. Last week, we met two people. Uh, we met Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And just as a uh, recap on that, Jeroboam was one of Solomon's officials, and Rehoboam was Solomon's son. If you need context for this, read 1 Kings chapter 10 through 13 as it picks it up. Uh, Jeroboam was given a prophecy, was given a word from God that God was going to give him the kingdom of Israel, that he was going to be successful, that it was going to be an incredible reign as long as Jeroboam followed God, obeyed God, and sought God in all these things, God was going to guarantee his success. Rehoboam, Solomon's son, was going to be the king over Judah, one tribe out of all of Israel, because God was not going to take all of Israel away from the line of David. So this is where we have Christ known as the line of Judah. This is the tribe in which he comes from. This is the, the lineage Solomon has a son, Rehoboam. Rehoboam is the king upon Solomon's death. That's the backstory. Let's get into it. So the last part of chapter 13, which we talked about last week, shows us a glimpse of Jeroboam. And it starts with even after this. And that even after this is that Jeroboam was, was prophesied from. A prophet came and gave him a word from God about the altars that Jeroboam had built to foreign gods. And there's even a scene where Jeroboam reaches out to touch the altar after he's being warned not to, and his hand shrivels up and becomes useless. 
And he cries out to the man of God to pray to God for his hand, and he does, and his hand is restored. And Jeroboam is like, this is awesome. Your God is awesome. I want you around me. Hey, come to dinner with me. But the prophet said, I can't because God had told me specifically not to eat with anyone and to go home. So the prophet goes home. And on the way, another prophet, a lesser prophet, somebody probably didn't have as much mojo as, as this prophet, he, he hears that this guy's on his way. He knows what has happened with Jeroboam, and he says, I want to talk with this guy. So he sends out his sons to say, go and have dinner with my dad. Go and have dinner with us. And the prophet goes, and he says, I want to invite you to dinner. And, and the prophet again goes, no, God told me not to eat with anyone and to go directly home. Well, the other prophet lies and says, oh, but God told me that it's okay for you to come have dinner with me. And so the guy, the other prophet, he lets his guard down. He says, yes. And because of that, and God's word said, if you do that, you're going to die. And, and so the prophet dies. And you know that Jeroboam has heard about this. I mean, first, he reaches out his hand. The hand becomes withered and useless. God restores it. Then he hears the story about the prophet who gave him that, who wouldn't eat with him but ate with somebody else because now he's dead. Jeroboam hears all this, and this is where we pick up in verse 33. Even after this, after all that, Jeroboam did not change his evil ways, but once more appointed priest for the high places from all sorts of people. Anyone who wanted to become a priest, he consecrated to the high places. This was the sin of the house of Jeroboam that led to its downfall and to its destruction from the face of the earth. That's pretty heavy stuff. And the reason that that kingdom fell, that Jeroboam's house fell, was because he was not taking seriously his commitment to God. And anybody could be a priest. Anybody could run a temple. So moving on to 1 Kings Chapter 4, as we continue, 1 Kings chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. At that time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, became ill. And Jeroboam said to his wife, Go disguise yourself so you won't be recognized as the wife of Jeroboam. Then go to Shiloh. Ahijah, the prophet, is there, the one who told me I would be king over this people. Take ten loaves of bread with you, some cakes and a jar of honey, and go to him, and he will tell you what will happen to the boy. So Jeroboam's wife did what he said and went to Ahijah's house in Shiloh. So right now we're looking and we see that Jeroboam is staying true to form. And that form is nothing to be proud of. The form is this. In times of need or crisis, Jeroboam would turn to the true God. Because he knew that his idols couldn't help him. He didn't tell his wife to go to this temple and that temple or this God and this God. He said, go to the prophet who told me that I would be the king over all this, who was God's man, go to him. So Jeroboam, when things got really dicey, would go to God. But he also knew that he had rejected God. And he had rejected his prophets before. And he figured that since he rejected that, that he wouldn't get the answer that he wanted because they would say, well, you don't listen to me anyway. So he sends his wife to the prophet in a disguise. I want you to hold on to that for a little bit. 
He's sending his wife to someone who can see the future but doesn't have enough to see through a mask or a disguise. Now, I want you to notice something else that Jeroboam did not do. Jeroboam did not tell his wife to pray for their son. Jeroboam did not ask the prophet to pray for his son. Jeroboam, from reading here, did not pray for his son. He wanted to use Ahijah, the prophet, as a fortune teller instead of seeking him as a man of God. Jeroboam wanted the knowledge. He wanted to know how this was all going to play out. He didn't want to have anything to do with the obedience and the reverence of who he was asking. And we all know a lot of people that have a knowledge of God. They have knowledge of Scripture. They know all the stories. But nothing good comes from thinking that a knowledge of God is greater than a relationship with God. Jeroboam knew enough to go and seek God's counsel on this, but Jeroboam did not put himself in a position to have a relationship with God to where he felt he could go on his own. Matthew Henry, great theologian from the, I believe it was the 18th, 19th century, said this of Jeroboam. It would have been more pious if he had begged the prophet's prayers and cast away his idols from him. If Jeroboam would have begged the prophet to pray on his son's behalf to God, and before he did that, he cleaned house of every false idol and God that he had, it would have been more pious, Henry says. Then the child might have been restored to him, just like his hand was. But most people would rather be told their fortune than their faults of their duty or their duty. And this, this, is where, this is where I see our nation and this is where I see our church right now. We want to hear our fortune. We want to be told that our side will win. We want to be told that everything will be all right. We want to be told all this foreknowledge We'd rather hear our fortune than to be made aware of our faults and shortcomings. Moving on to verse 6. So when Ahijah heard the sound of her footsteps at the door, I, I needed to tell you this. By this time, Ahijah was an old man, and he was blind, and he couldn't see. And Jeroboam didn't know that because he had no business keeping up with the guy who gave him the prophecy that he would... You know, learn so for he sends his wife in a disguise. That's the one thing I think is funny. What good is a disguise to a blind man? Can't see it anyway. But this is how cool God is. Before his wife ever stepped foot on the porch, Asia was saying, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why this pretense? He knew before, if you read this. Before he heard the sound of her footsteps at the door, he hadn't even opened the door yet. He's speaking through the door. Come in, wife of Jeroboam, why this pretense? I have, sent, I have been sent to you with bad news. 
Go tell Jeroboam that this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I raised you up from among the people and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. But you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commands and followed me with all his heart, doing only what was right in my eyes. You have done more evil than all who lived before you. You have made for yourself other gods, idols of metal. You have aroused my anger and you turned your back on me. I feel sorry for Jeroboam's wife. Because she gets the full brunt of this. And she has no, I mean, she realizes from the get-go, this isn't what I signed up for. This isn't how this played out. The prophet is saying, you didn't come to get me. I came to you. I was sent to you by God to tell you this. And guess what? It's bad news. It's bad news. Israel's a godly nation. They have throughout its history. They have been God's people. They have been taken out of captivity, not once, but several times. They have been provided for. And they have this really bad tendency to be all about God when things are bad and to want what he has for them in form of protection or providence or anything like that. But if they get a little comfortable in where they're at, then they want what everybody else has. Where's our golden calf? Where's our king? Where's our idol? Why can't we be right? And they will stray from God. This is why I love history so much. Nothing's changed. It's not like this is some new season that we're in. It's the same season. And and Israel was a godly nation. And by that, I mean that it was God's nation. Not ours. Not a coalition of godly people who made it a godly nation. It was a godly nation because God said, those are my people. Look, if you want to be a godly nation, there needs to be the realization that you will be held to the expectations of a holy God. a holy God who will bring wrath if his people don't follow him. We're big on wanting wrath to come to the people that we think aren't following God, that aren't one of us, that aren't like us. We're really big on that. That we, we want to preach that this is how this is, that at some point every knee shall bow and tongues confess. And yes, that is that is true. That is, that is truth. But what we're seeing here is God saying to his people, you want to be considered mine, here's some expectations. And if you don't follow those expectations, there will be consequences. And from this, the wife of Jeroboam learned two things. We've already probably covered this. But first, she realized that the news was bad, probably because the prophet flat out told her, hey, how you doing? Welcome to my house. Got some news for you. It's bad. That's a paraphrase. The news was not going to be pleasant. And second, that she thought she was being sent to 
Ahijah by her husband. But in truth, Ahijah was being sent by God with a message to her and Jeroboam and all of Israel. And that message was, your time's going to be short. It's going to be a point where there's not a kingdom. Now, here's where I want you to see where Israel kind of had these faults. Saul, they wanted Saul as a king. Give us a king, right? Give us a king. Everybody else has got a king. Why can't we have a king? Give us a king. So they had Saul as a king. Saul was a bad man and a bad king. And we had David. And we had Solomon. And Solomon was a good king, but a bad man. The last week we learned that Solomon had, what was it, 400? Three out of 700, 1,000, 700 wives and 300 concubines and mistresses. I may have messed those up. Three and seven. I don't know what the numbers were. That's a thousand. That's a thousand voices. That's not wise. This is where he became corrupted. Solomon was a good king, but a bad man. And though both men were bad, Jeroboam was far worse. He became the measuring line for what a bad king of Israel was. And even in this passage that that God spoke through Ahijah, he, he compared Jeroboam unfavorably to David. Now, you're sitting here going like, wait a minute, why isn't David getting blasted? for? Because I remember David had this thing for Uriah's wife to the point where he had Uriah killed. That doesn't seem godly. And you're absolutely right. Here's the difference. David strayed from God because he followed his own hungers and his desires. He thought too highly of himself. He strayed from God. He knew that he had sinned. And when he knew that he had sinned, and when Nathan told him that he had sinned, he repented and came back to God. He had consequences that he lived with, but he said, I made this mistake. I made the mistake to think that I did not need God. And I came back to him. Jeroboam, Jeroboam just played God like he was some sort of prop. Like he was all about God when it, when it paid off for Jeroboam when the people were on God's side or when Jeroboam needed something. And Jeroboam, in this passage, he even turned his back on God and had contempt for him. That's the difference between David and Jeroboam. Kind of like the idea of, you know, like David was genuinely broken because he had sinned against God. Jeroboam was upset because he got caught. It's the difference. And he turned his back. And the prophet tells his wife, your husband turned his back on God. Ezekiel 23, 35 says this, therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says, since you have forgotten me and turned your back on me, you must bear the consequences of your lewdness and prostitution. Let me throw out the word prostitution. You guys, we automatically think of the world's oldest profession, and we go to this thing, and it's probably true, but I think in the big contents of this, he's saying, your prostitution is this. You've sold yourself out to anything and everything that's shiny or attractive or makes you think that you're going to get some sort of pleasure out of it. You have prostituted yourself out to all this, and it's not God. And because of that, you're going to have the consequences of it. You turned your back, and you sold yourself out. 
And you know what the thing about Jeroboam is this. Jeroboam could have had a lasting dynasty. He was promised that by God. You follow me, obey me, and I will make you the greatest ruler ever, and your people will never know anything but but triumph and victory. He could have had all this. He could have had a lasting destiny, but he wasted the promise of God with his unbelief, his idolatry, and his outright rejection of God. Let me get a little quicker on the story here. So Jeroboam's wife goes back, and if I'm remembering correctly, the minute she stepped foot in the house, his son died. His son was buried in honor with God's grace because his son hadn't done anything. But that was the only one in Jeroboam's household that would receive any kind of mercy from God because over the next several generations, his house would crumble. Jeroboam was not a good man. And now we learn about Rehoboam. This is the 21st verse, chapter 14. Rehoboam, son of Solomon, was king in Judah. Now, this is important because Judah, hail, hail, line of Judah, when we talk about Christ, as we have Jesus' lineage coming from the, the line of Judah, the house of David, here it is. Rehoboam, son of Solomon, was king in Judah. He was 41 years old when he became king. And he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel in which to put his name. His mother's name was Naaman. She was an Ammonite. Hold on to that for a second. We'll come back to it. Verse 22, Judah, the whole country, Judah did evil in the eyes of the Lord. By the sins they committed, they stirred up his jealous anger more than those who were before them had done. They also set up for themselves high places, sacred stones and Asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. There were even male shrine prostitutes in the land. The people engaged in all the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. Grab that. They practiced the very things that God had driven out of their land to give them that that land of milk and honey, that blessing. They went back and practiced all of it. They let their culture be infiltrated by the culture that God had kicked out. And they sinned, and Rehoboam, Rehoboam let it all happen. We already know that he was a tyrant, that his dad Solomon ruled with an iron fist, and when Rehoboam first became king, Jeroboam went to him and said, look, your people are tired of being ruled with an iron fist. I think it would be wise, as he spoke with some of other Solomon's advisors, I think it would be wise of you if you kind of loosened up a little bit and showed more compassion and empathy. And Rehoboam met with his tribe, and they said, nah, we're not going to do that. If dad was hard, we're going to be tougher. He was a despot. He ruled with an iron fist. Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked God to jealousy with their sins. 
Sins of idolatry, that is what I don't think we talk enough about. The fact that, yes, God is good, and God is great, and he is all-loving, but he is a jealous God. We just sang about it. He is jealous for me. He does not want your attention or your affection or your commitment to be shared with anything other than him, not because he's got an ego, but because he knows that he is the only one who loves you and has for you what will bless you, and he is a jealous God. He will not have an add one. He will not have God and. It is him and him alone. And this is the fault that Judah had, because Judah had, yeah, we got God. Yeah, we, we, here's our history. We know our history. But yeah, we got this, and we got this, and we have all this, and we are cultured, and we are diverse, and we have all these things that fill into our lives, and are filling us with garbage. And God was jealous of that. No! No! See, when God sees us dancing with somebody else, he steps in and goes, "Uh uh-uh. Either run off with your new partner or stay with me. You can't both. But he is a jealous God. And Judah was like an unfaithful spouse that would just run off and pursue spiritual adultery with idols all over the place. Verse 25. In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Shishak, the king of Egypt, attacked Jerusalem. He carried off the treasure of the temple of the Lord and the treasures of the royal palace. He took everything, including all the gold shields that Solomon had made, because Solomon didn't have any silver in his temple. No, silver wasn't going to be good enough. It was all going to be gold. So even the, the shields that the guards used were made of solid gold. And Shishak, he took them. He took it all. And if you look in, this is what I love about this, is that this isn't like we're guessing. This isn't like some people have an issue with like Noah. Like, was there really that big of a flood? That's not the discussion here, because this is history. Second Chronicles chronicles that has and records these stories. And archaeology from this area has confirmed this account of Shishak coming in and taking over Judah. And from Second Chronicles 12, we learn this. We learn exactly why the attack succeeded. When Rehoboam had established the kingdom and had strengthened himself, then he disobeyed the law of God and Israel went with him. Second Chronicles 12 two. The leader went away from God and the people followed and that made them vulnerable to this attack. So Shishak brought an allied army of nations against Judah. It wasn't just Egypt. It was everybody else. He was getting attacked from all sides. Shishak took the fortified cities of Judah on the way to Jerusalem. But as the enemy approached, enemy army approached Jerusalem, the prophet Shemaiah led the leaders of Judah in genuine repentance. And they did. They realized the jig was up. They realized that they had made a mistake. They realized they had followed after the wrong gods. And they repented. And in response of their repentance, God allowed Jerusalem to remain, but they would be servants of Shishak, the king of Egypt. This Rehoboam. Solomon had left great wealth to his son, Rehoboam, both in the temple and in the palace. And after only five years, 
that wealth was largely gone. Rehoboam blew through all of it. And when Shishak took the golden shields from the army, Rehoboam was like, like you can't have an army without shields, so let's, let's build shields. And he made them out of bronze. Bronze. Solomon wouldn't even allow silver in his temple. That's how far they've fallen. Rehoboam's settling for third place now. In the rest of the Acts of Rehoboam, Second Chronicles summarizes them this way. In verse 12, 14. And he did evil because he did not prepare his heart to seek the Lord. And this speaks of the lack of his personal relationship with God. He had knowledge of God, but he didn't have a personal relationship with God. Verse 29. As for the other events of Rehoboam's reign and all he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the king of Judah? And that's why I love this. And we'll get into this a little bit. But at the end of this chapter, it, it talks. And when it talked about Jeroboam, when it talked about Rehoboam, it said, are not all of his, his actions, is not all of his history written down in the chronicles of history? Secular history has written it down. So this isn't a matter of whether this is true or not. This, this happened. And, and you can look at antiquities to see that it happened. And for the next three or four kings, it all starts that same way. Yeah, I'm sorry, it ends that same way. And as for their accomplishments or what they did, it's written down. We're not making this up. Everything was written down. As for the other events of Rehoboam's reign, all and all he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? There was continual warfare between Rehoboam and Jeroboam, and Rehoboam rested with his ancestors and was buried with them in the city of David. His mother's name was Nama. She was an Ammonite, and Abijah, his son, succeeded him as king. Now, any guess as to why the writer here made it a point to mention Rehoboam's mother's name twice and where she was from twice? Remember Solomon and his thousand paramours that were around him all the time? I don't know if I use paramour right. It sounded like a cool word. The thousand women that surrounded him, either as his wives or his mistress, from different countries, from different cultures. This is where Rehoboam's mother comes from. And this was Solomon going against what God said, do not marry outside of Israel. So Rehoboam is building on the foundation of disobedience that basically sired him. And then it says that there was a war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all their days. One nation, Judah and all the rest of Israel. Jeroboam over all the rest of Israel. Rehoboam over Judah. They fought with themselves. They fought with themselves. God had provided protection and providence from all the attackers that would come from outside of Israel when Israel would follow God. But now, the continual fighting of these two tribes, these two kings, means that Israel self-imploded. 
they were destroyed from the inside out. And then get this, two kings, two kingdoms. Maybe you could call them political parties. Maybe you could call them blue and red. Maybe you could say that they are on opposite sides of the aisle. I'm not even going to let you say maybe. I'm just going to say this is what it was. One nation under God, divisible. And that's why Israel fell. And that's why Israel was banished. And that's why they didn't have a homeland for so long. And that's why. Because they had two kings that were very different. Rehoboam, he governed as a tyrant with an iron fist. He started bad, but as we read in Second Chronicles, he humbled himself to God towards the end of his life. Jeroboam, he governed as a populist. He just wanted to make sure everybody was happy. You need another idol? Okay, get your idol. Whatever idol you want. There's a spot here. Have your temple. You want to sacrifice chickens in the square to the goddess of rocks? Let's call the colonel and get some, some chicken. Let's go. I want you to be happy. That's how he ruled. Just do whatever makes you feel good. He was a populist. And he starts with a great promise, but it ends terribly. But both governed horribly because they didn't commit to God. Here's what I want you to take away as we finish up. First one's this. Go back to Jeroboam sending his wife. God will see through our disguises. God sees right through our disguises. We can put on the mask of piety or pride or proclamation that we've got it all together, but God cuts right through that. He sees right through that, and he sees our hearts, and he knows if our hearts are genuine. He knows if our agendas are, are his or our own. He sees right through it, and the reason I bring that up is because we might as well start the relationship, if we haven't already, with being perfectly honest with him because we ain't hiding anything from him. The other thing, acknowledging God, knowing of God, none of that will save you. Only a relationship with God does that. Only a relationship does that. Now look, where we are is not new. We're just repeating history. And there is a reason we are in the shape we are in. And it's mostly our fault. But the problem is, is that we don't want to be told it's our fault. We don't want to be told you need to work on this. We don't want to be corrected. So we chase fortune tellers. And here's the thing. We will chase fortune tellers until we find the one that tells us exactly what we want to hear. We chase conspiracy to avoid conviction. But here's the thing I don't want you to miss. 
even though God's people throughout history have been like an adulterous spouse who runs off and leaves, God never gives up on us. There's never been a moment where he said, I've had enough of you and and I'm done. There's always that invitation for reconciliation to come back. God does not give up. God has not given up on us. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Jeroboam turns his back on God in contempt. Contempt. If you can remember Isaiah 38, 17 that I read earlier, God turns his back too. But he turns his back on all the sins that we have committed. The words that God has put all my sins behind his back on the cross when Christ said it is finished. There is no new work done. Those sins were forgiven and God put them behind his back and he doesn't see them anymore. He just sees us, whether we are his or not, fully committed or not. We have this in Christ, that we are not our past and that he holds our future. But we have to be committed to him. Not to an idea or an emotion. Not to a moment or a circumstance. Committed to him. This is what we have in Christ. So don't hide. Don't settle. Rest in God and walk in relationship with him. Father God, thank you for this time. And I pray that the words made sense and were yours. And I ask that you give your Holy Spirit to them to build them up to a place where we can carry them with us. And all these things we ask for your blessing. We ask for your grace. We ask for your forgiveness. And we do this for your glory.